joy to minister the Word of God to you this morning, and I will be speaking to you on our third pillar of Calvary Bible Church, sharing the gospel of God's sovereign grace. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1, and in a few minutes we will look at a few passages there. But I want to remind you, first of all, of our Lord's great commission to each of us, the mandate of the church, which is found in Matthew 28. You don't need to turn there. You're familiar with the passage. There in verse 19, we read, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is our great commission, one that we are passionate about here. Jake Hutchison is the primary elder in charge of this. And we are all encouraged about what has and what is happening in this regard. But we are not content. We want to excel still more in this crucial and multifaceted ministry of Calvary Bible Church. I'm going to give you more details about this in a few minutes. But first, before I address the specifics, I would like to challenge you in the same way the Apostle Paul challenged a very mature church in Philippi, a church who, like us, had its problems a church that had some weaknesses, some blind spots that needed to be addressed. And this is important for us to look at, even as it was for them to look at, so that we, like them, can be more effective, not only in the area of evangelism, but in every area of Christian service and living. So, as we come to Philippians 1, what we begin to discover is that Paul dearly loved this church as they loved him, but he had some serious concerns. He feared that they were letting down their guard, as you read the epistle, that they were maybe becoming a little too lax and allowing false teaching to infiltrate their ranks. There were people in their congregation he called, quote, enemies of the cross in chapter 3. He knew that even a mature church one that valued precise doctrine, if they're not careful, can can become apathetic and can begin to slide down the slippery slope of doctrinal error and moral failure. He also saw signs of disunity within the church that could lead to spiritual defection and bring dishonor to Christ. He saw infighting and grumbling, harsh criticism and rebellion that could harm their witness and weaken their effectiveness. He saw them needlessly afraid of their adversaries when sharing the gospel. I think we can all identify with that at times. They were not striving together against the enemy. So these were his concerns. Bottom line, he feared that if they continued in these things, they would not be conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he feared that these things would only get worse in his absence. So he lovingly exhorts them, as I will do here with you today, in these particular areas, to become more like Christ. And we will see this especially 
in verse 27 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 18 of chapter 2. But for our purposes today, we're going to look primarily at verses 27 and 30 of Philippians 1. So follow along as I read. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So here, my friends, is a call for conduct in the church that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, one that we will all do well to heed. And essentially, we see four primary exhortations in this text, and I will use them as my outline to you. He's going to ask them to, number one, stand firm, number two, stay united, Number three, strive together, and finally, suffer expectantly. And if one of these exhortations are missing or disregarded, a church will not be successful in sharing the gospel of God's sovereign grace, which is the third pillar that we will be addressing here in a moment. In fact, that church will become increasingly, increasingly ineffective and defective in every area of Christian ministry and every area of Christian living. Why? Because when these things begin to happen, our lives no longer match our message. The Spirit of God is quenched. We are no longer controlled by the Spirit, but we become controlled by the flesh. And sadly, all of these things are evident in every church, including Calvary Bible Church. We see these things in your life. I see these things in my life. So we must address them. So I challenge you to examine your heart. We all have room to grow. And as we improve in these four crucial categories of spiritual living, we will be more effective in this third pillar that I will detail later. So let's examine the text more closely. May I remind you, if you notice, in beginning in verse 25, Paul says... And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now, at this point, my friends, what happens, even though you don't see it in the text, and I'm reading a bit into it, but the language, the original language helps us see this. It's as if at this point he furrows his brow and he looks at them And he says, only, listen to me, I've got something very careful or very important that you need to carefully hear. And so this is what he says here, a strong exhortation, verse 27, only, it's in the emphatic here, it means just one thing, regardless of what happens to me, this is crucial, a crucial condition for my joy, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The verb conduct is a term used to describe good citizenship. In the original language in those early days, one who is honorable, 
uh, one who would have been loyal to their Roman colony as Philippi was, one who will live and contribute to the common good of the entire colony, not just living to himself, one who would lock arms with others uh, as a unit and stand against any adversary and so forth. So here, Paul is speaking to Christians whose citizenship is in heaven. The point is, we are the ones who are to be devoted to the kingdom of Christ. And our devotion is manifested in holy conduct. We are to live as citizens of heaven. We're all to share this common citizenship. If you will, we are all on the same team. We're all part of the same family. That's the point. Now, the Philippians um, understood this very well. They were proud citizens of this Roman colony, and they used all of their skills, all of their talents to come together and work for the common good. Uh, no one lived as in, in an island unto themselves. They couldn't survive if they did that. So there was a, a mutual interdependence that was necessary to survive. The same thing is true in every church. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks about the varieties of spiritual gifts that the Spirit of God has given us. Every single believer has a spiritual gift, and sometimes more than one. But we read that they were not given to us for ourselves, but for the common good, as he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now, evidently, there were some factions that were developing here in the church at Philippi. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 11 that every church is going to have that from time to time. There were some people that were disgruntled, disgruntled splinter groups that felt mistreated or they were uh, upset. He doesn't go into specifics, but upset about basically non-essential matters within the church. So they were not partnering with the rest of the church. They were stirring up dissension as they tried to rally other people to their cause, which is common when these things arise within a church. This theme is explicit throughout this epistle, but he states it explicitly in chapter 2, if you'll turn there. Notice verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling. The Greek word is gongusmas. It's a, what we call an onomatopoetic word. It's a word that sounds like what it means. And it, it literally means kind of that guttural moaning, you know, that groaning, you know, we, that we all do. At least that we see our kids do, right? That's what it means. The sounds of a disgruntled person. The sounds of what I would call a whiner or a powder or a grumbler. He says, do all things without that. So this is the person that feels mistreated. This is the emotional response of this kind of a person. And evidently this was going on within the church there. So do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now this is not an emotional term. This is an intellectual term. This carries the idea of being argumentative, of questioning and doubting the truth or the wisdom of a matter. By the way, it's also translated dissension. So he's saying basically do all things without resentful whining and arguing that causes dissensions. Parents, imagine what that would be like in your house with your kids. Imagine what that would be like in a church 
where we as adults tend to do the same kinds of things. Now, here's why it's so important to do all things without grumbling or disputing, he goes on to say, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So, folks, this is what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's the gospel of Christ? It is the good news of God's saving and transforming grace. When we come to Christ, we're made new creatures. The old things are pass away. The new things come. We begin to manifest the fruits of the Spirit. If we're walking the ways he's saying not to, then we're not manifesting the Spirit. We're manifesting the deeds of the flesh. Who wants what we have if we live that way? That's the point. If the unsaved world does not see this transforming power of the gospel in our lives manifested in our love for Christ, in our love for one another, then why on earth would they have any reason to want to hear our message? So, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Now he's going to get more specific with his exhortation. And here we come to the four specific ways that we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul expected of them and what certainly the Spirit of God expects of us. Number one, we're to stand firm. Notice in verse 27, He's saying, basically, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm. Present tense. It's the idea that you continue to stand as you are. This is your reputation. But be careful. Don't start to slip. Standing firm was a military term used of a soldier that was required to stand his ground, to hold his ground, a man that would defend his position come what may. And Paul uses this phrase in several of his epistles to emphasize the importance of holding your ground against the attacks of Satan and the lusts of your own flesh. We want to make this very practical. Friends, please understand, what Satan does is he tempts us with delicious temptations, sins that we will begin to commit, that we can justify in our heart, we're unable to even see it. And the way you know that will happen is if you're confronted on these things, rather than you feeling convicted, you get defensive. And you kind of bristle and you get angry. How dare you? And we begin to rationalize. We begin to justify. Satan wants to tempt us to discouragement, to defection, to, to doubting, to believe lies, to enter into gossip with other people, to do the the backstabbing that we see from time to time in families and in churches. He wants us to yield to the natural disposition of our flesh. And folks, every one of us are prone to being self-centered, to being self-absorbed, self-righteous, jealous. We can be easily offended, critical, demanding to have our own way, basically not loving our neighbor. 
We resent authority. We rebel against it. We want to do our own thing. That's our natural disposition. It's interesting, later in Philippians 4, 1, he will once again exhort them to stand firm in the Lord, my beloved, he said. In other words, don't give ground to the enemy of your soul and the lusts of your flesh, your, those heart attitudes. In Ephesians 6, he calls us to arms. He warns there of the great battle against all believers waged by this ingenious, diabolical enemy that we have, Satan and all of his minions. And twice he calls the saints to stand firm. In Ephesians six eleven, we read, Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, he says, Take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now, practically speaking, Satan would have you ignore the clear commands of Scripture regarding your character and your conduct. In fact, some of you are probably already beginning to bristle at some of the things that you're hearing. And if you're not, you probably will. Frankly, even as I studied this text, I found myself bristling at what Paul was saying. Because this is just not the type of thing we like to hear. We are hopelessly biased in our own favor. We have this temptation that comes our way to disregard things that we hear. Satan knows how to offer an alternative interpretation that will appeal to our flesh. He knows how to bring just the right people into our life to lead us astray, to lead us into a fool's paradise, and sometimes it's our spouse. He knows how to come up with various scenarios in our life to create the absolute perfect storm of deception and destruction, and we can't even see it. Now, how can we possibly combat combat such a fiend such an ingenious enemy. How can we even combat the enemy of our flesh within us? We have to stand firm. And what does that mean? Well, we have to hold fast to what God has said in his word regarding every attitude, regarding every action. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit. We cannot compromise. We cannot give ground, no matter what the personal cost, but we will be tempted to do so, because unless you're lying to yourself, you will admit that in many ways you love your sin more than you love Christ. And with that, Paul adds another exhortation. Not only are we to stand firm, but he says stay united. Notice in verse 27, standing firm in one spirit, referring to the human spirit, with one mind. This is the idea of staying united. A church must be united in purpose. It must manifest a a mutual, harmonious oneness in conviction and in function. And it's interesting. We don't stand firm alone, as we see here. We do so together. It says, in one spirit with one mind. Now, Satan loves to divide and conquer. 
in your marriage, in your family, in your work, in the church. And disunity in the church has been and always will be one of the greatest problems that we will face as Christians. I can't tell you how many people I know who have said, you know, I just don't ever want to go to church again because it just ends up in a fight. That's exactly what Satan wants to have happen. It's fascinating when you think about it. When the church was first formed, there was amazing unity. It existed when it first came into being at Pentecost. Remember in Acts 2, verse 44, we read this. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all, sharing them with all as anyone might have need day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Folks, Satan hates that. So he's got to do something, right? He's got to thwart the purposes of God. So as you read the historical account there in Acts, you begin to see that persecution sets in. Well, even with the persecution, we see in chapter 4, verse 32, quote, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. So Satan turns up the heat more and more, and all of a sudden, bam, pride. Deception rears its ugly head in the church through a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And God smokes them. He kills them, indicating that he demands purity in the church. But as time moves on, we see how Satan turns up the heat more and more. You just read the accounts in the New Testament. Devastating effects of of temptation and sin. We see things like the church being ripped apart from within, the cultural clashes between the Jews and the Gentiles, the petty preference wars, matters of weak faith, jealousy within the church that always leads to strife, grumbling and disputing, factions and dissensions. In fact, later in Philippians 4, in this letter, now imagine this, this letter gets read to the church and publicly he confronts two divisive women in the church who were at odds with each other, attacking each other, causing great dissension within the church. And he exhorts them in verse 2 of chapter 4 and says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Whoa. That would have gotten everybody's attention. In fact, if you go on to read, he urges one of the key elders to immediately get involved and resolve the dispute, whatever it was. So you have disunity, discord, infighting, petty preferences, grumbling, whining, bitterness. It never ends. And it comes and goes even in our church. It's simply part of the great war called ministry. The church is always under attack. Now, Jesus knew that this was coming. And obviously, he was passionate about unity in the church. And therefore, he he exhorted his disciples at the Last Supper in John 13, beginning in verse 34, by saying this. 
a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love, have love for one another. Now, obviously, folks, this doesn't come naturally. We have to work at this. Every single person in this room, myself included, has a proclivity to be selfish, self-absorbed, self-centered, self-righteous. Again, we can all be easily offended, unforgiving, jealous, critical, bitter. We're prone to criticizing other people. We can see the speck in our brother's eye, you know, a mile away, and we can't see the log on our own. We're all prone to that. We are prone to wounded pride and and jealousy. By the way, that usually that's the source of unjust criticisms that we have in the church. A person who's hell-bent on advancing some personal agenda, seeking revenge, whatever. From time to time, these things will surface in our church. By the way, it's always been fascinating to me. I've been a pastor a long time now. And it, I, I always get a bit nervous when things are going well. Because what will happen is, you know, people are coming to Christ, people are growing, and we're, we're seeing good things hand, uh, uh, you know, coming along, and, and we're, we're rejoicing. Most people are standing firm, and most people are united and happy and working hard. And then out of nowhere, somebody comes up and said, says something like, well, did you hear about so-and-so? They're really upset. Oh, no. About What? And 99% of the time, the answer is not something doctrinal. There's not some blatant sin. There, 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 there's no immorality and there's nothing unethical. No one's embezzling money. But rather, it's some personal preference that's not being met. Somebody has been offended or they feel rejected. And sometimes it's, it's worthy of some investigation. But you know what? Most of the time, it, it's frivolous. And it's worthy more of confrontation because like a spark in a dry field, this type of stuff begins to set the church ablaze. And then suddenly the temptation is for everything to shut down to try to put out this person's fire or this group's fire. And what I found is if you put out their fire, you start 10 more. And so it's always a very difficult thing. Now, how does this happen? How on earth does this happen? We all love Christ. We all love him. We love each other. How does this stuff happen? The answer is selfishness or empty conceit. Notice what Paul says in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 2. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Then he says this, do nothing from selfishness. Let me camp on that word for a second. This describes a person who really sees himself as the center of gravity around which everybody else needs to orbit. Oh, he would never admit that. But that's how he functions. And he typically focuses on his agenda to the exclusion of others. 
And this always breeds anger and jealousy and resentment and gossip and all that stuff. That's what the term means. So he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. The old King James translates this vain glory. It's really a pretty good word, vain glory. This is a person seeking personal glory and acclaim. This is a person who is always the hero of all of his stories. This speaks of an overinflated self-image, a person who thinks he is right and everybody else ought to agree with him. He says, do nothing from that, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. My folks, my friends, here's the... Here's the uh, the origin of discord and disunity in the church. It's selfishness and or empty conceit. It's conflicting agendas. It's competing interests. It's, it's this attitude that basically says, I don't like the way things are going. I demand my way, so get out of my way so I can have my way. That's the attitude. You know, James speaks of this. Remember what James said in James 4? Beginning in verse 1, he says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? It's interesting, the term pleasures, it it can also be translated passions. Um, It's from uh, the the Greek word hedone. Uh, We we get our word hedonism from that. that. That's the idea. In fact, I, I, just for the fun of it, I wanted to see what one of the great Greek scholars, how they interpret this out of TD&T, Kittle. Um, and here's how they interpret that. The, the term pleasure speaks of, quote, one of the many forces which belong to the world of an unsanctified carnality, which strives against the work of God and his spirit, and which drags men back again into the kingdom of evil. Boy, does that say it all. This is our lusts, our passions. He says, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know, this was so bad at the church of Galatia that Paul said in chapter 5, verse 13, that they were were turning their freedom into an opportunity for the flesh rather than through love serving one another. And in verse 15, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. The imagery there is of savage, wild animals turning on each other and killing each other. Beloved, this was so serious. These types of things were so serious in the church that on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed to his father in John 17, beginning in verse 21, and said to his father, I pray that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Now we know that the Father answered this prayer by creating this glorious organism called the body of Christ, the spiritual organism, in which every believer 
is, is united into this body at the moment of salvation, but we have to live out this oneness. So Paul, again, he comes here and he exhorts the saints to stay united in one spirit, verse 27, with one mind. And he's going to go on in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, to demonstrate how Jesus is to be our supreme example of this kind of humility, that great kenosis passage. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, listen up, those of you who are nothing compared to the incarnate Son of God, yet you are committed to self-exaltation and demanding your own way. No, have this attitude in yourselves, which also is in Christ Jesus. Folks, let let me tell you what this looks like real practically, staying, this idea of staying united. Your preferences are not important. Your feelings are not important. Your suggestions aren't important. What's important is unity in the body. Yes, but I just can't go along with fill in the blank. You know what? That's not important. I mean, you may be right. In time, the Spirit of God will work that out. But right now, that doesn't really matter. Well, yes, but, but it is so obvious that I'm right. Well, you, you may be. But unity is going to be more important. So let's give this time to work. Yes, but I just don't feel appreciated. I don't feel like I fit in. I don't feel loved. I don't feel accepted. I don't feel wanted. I don't feel understood. You know what? That really doesn't matter. I can't believe you're saying that. I have been mistreated. I have been maligned. I have been slandered. I've been attacked. I've been misrepresented. I've been marginalized. I've been ignored. I have been overlooked, and I've got a record of wrongs right here, and I can read them all off to you. My friends, to my shame, I cannot tell you how many times I have said those very things. But what I have learned, and I'm still trying to learn, and what Paul is teaching here is that what I feel and what I think and what I want isn't important. What's important is unity. Now, it's okay to voice your preferences, to express your feelings, to share your ideas, but it's not okay to demand them. It's not okay to stomp off in a huff if you don't get your way. What's important is unity. And this is what it means to conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. We have to learn that the church is not about me and my needs. It is about God and his eternal glory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul called the bickering saints in Corinth to the same standard in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. He says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
You see, friends, all of this is foundational to a Christ-honoring church, and it is absolutely indispensable for effective evangelism because nobody likes being around folks that have the reputation of not being able to get along with other people, especially their own church family. You show me a resentful whiner that is always beating some self-serving drum and causing division, and I will show you a man that is ineffective in evangelism and is a cancer to the church. This is why Paul is so passionate in exhorting us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Stand firm, stay united, thirdly, strive together. Verse 27, he's saying, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's interesting, standing firm was a military metaphor and striving together is an athletic metaphor, but it was also uh, applied to military techniques. Soon, athleo in the original language is a compound Greek word. You take the preposition soon, and, which means with, and athleo, which, by the way, we get our English word athlete or athletic from that. When you attach the two together, you have the idea of engaging in competition or conflict with someone, kind of locking arms, contending side by side. A great image is team sports. I played basketball in high school and college, and one of the things I learned real quick is that you better play as a team or you're going to be sitting on the bench. There were times where I never saw a shot I didn't like. And I found out that that's not how you play that game. You have to give up your rights, you know. You have to give up your agenda, so to speak. There's no grandstanding. You can't be a ball hog. The same thing in the church. Now, the ancient Greeks and Romans perfected this concept on the battlefield with the use of the Roman phalanx, P-H-A-L-A-N-X. It was a phalanx formation. Uh, It was a Greek expression to signify an an organized, dense line of battle. What they would do is they would have a, a, a massive rectangle filled with military uh, men, uh, uh, this formation uh, composed of dense, a dense grouping of heavy infantry, and they would be armed with spears that would protrude out of interlocking uh, shields, and they would move as one entity, and by doing so, they could just crush any opponent in their path. This is the idea of striving together. We should strive together for the sake of the gospel. We fight together as companions. We must be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. If I can put it more practically, there's no place for whiners here. There's no place for that. No place for self-will, for self-righteous critics, mad because we're not doing what they want. No place for a coward. You know, everybody's locked in and we're all going to battle here. There's no place for individualism where you're going to go off and do your own thing. We strive together for the faith of the gospel. And the faith here refers to the objective Christian faith, sometimes called the gospel of Christ, as we read in Galatians 1.7. Um, it, it is the faith contained in the gospel, uh, as stated in Jude 3. You remember that text where we are to fight against the adversaries who deny this faith 
uh, contained in the Word of God, and, and Jude says that we are to contend earnestly. That's the same idea. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So we, we lock arms and we strive together for the saving truths contained within the canon of Scripture. That's what Paul is calling us to do. Now, the emphasis here is on a common enemy. And folks, you're not going to do this unless you see the enemy. So, let me just remind you of our enemy. Satan has a wonderful plan for your life and for the church, and that is to destroy both. We look around us, we see false teachers everywhere. You've got phony churches, you've got predators and entrepreneurs filling pulpits. We have a culture that is growing increasingly hostile to genuine Bible-believing Christians. All we have to do is look around and we see a media and, 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 and the educational system designed to brainwashing our children and destroying our families. This is the enemy that we have. We have pornographers poisoning people's minds with immoral filth. We have drug pushers. By the way, now it's even legal in some states. Poisoning the minds of people, turning them into mindless monsters as they send them off to an early grave. We have got God-hating homosexuals who are, are aggressively seeking our destruction. There are marriages falling apart. There are children confused and lonely. We know missionaries who live in constant fear of their life. We're in a fierce battle for the gospel, for the kingdom of Christ, waging war against the kingdom of darkness. And you're upset about what? Forgive me for not having much sympathy over your hangnail. When we have hundreds of people that are bleeding profusely and the souls of men are in the balance. You know, every great general knows that his troops will fight against each other and turn on each other unless they have a common enemy to fight. And only then will they unite. You remember what happened at 9-11? Seems like a lifetime ago. Countries all fighting against each other like they are now. And all of a sudden, 9-11 happens. And what goes on? Boy, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. Everybody's locking arms. And you see this great patriotism. That's the idea here. This is what Paul is saying. Strive together for the faith of the gospel. And he says, in no way alarmed. This is an interesting word, turo, in the original language. It's used to describe a horse that, that, gets, that gets spooked by something that's perfectly harmless. As a horseman, I know all about this. We've had some horses that we call horses that are always hunting boogers. All right? A leaf comes down or, or a plastic bag blows across the field and he explodes like it's, you know, T-Rex coming after him. This is the idea here. Don't be alarmed with that. Don't explode in fear, he says, by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. You know, the fact, this is what Paul is saying, the fact that you boldly persevere when your opponents attack you is, um, for the gospel, 
is, is living proof that you belong to Christ and that your enemies don't and that they will be judged. So don't be intimidated by some plastic garbage bag blowing your way, if you understand what I mean. And then finally, not only should we stand firm, stay united, and strive together, but finally, we are to suffer expectantly, beginning in verse 29 and 30. He says, for to you it has been granted. It literally means you've been given a gracious gift. You know what that gracious gift is? For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Of course, referring to Paul's imprisonment. Friends, we're not only commanded to suffer for Christ's sake, but we are to consider it a privilege, the highest form of honor. Now, with that brief overview of that text, let's apply this to our third foundational pillar of Calvary Bible Church, which is sharing the gospel of God's sovereign grace. I want to look at this just for a few minutes, a little bit more specifically. First of all, we we want all of you to help us in establishing uh, a more organized neighborhood outreach ministry. This is the first thing as we get a little bit more specific. Now, I know that we are scattered all over the place here in Middle Tennessee, but we want to primarily focus on the Jolton and the Pleasant View area. We've got ideas uh, that include service projects, things like uh, mowing people's yards, uh, trying to help them with cleanup, uh, storm damage, uh, assisting those in need. Now, we've done a lot of this. A lot of it's behind the scenes. Most of it's for just our church members, but we want to try to do this for other people that we may not know. And some of this has been happening, but we want to organize this even better and make this a priority. This is also going to include a new meals ministry kind of program where we're going to partner with some other churches um, with the Second Harvest Food Bank. Uh, It's a very highly organized and very cost-effective way of feeding some of our poorest neighbors. I understand that maybe as many as eight of our current CBC family members uh, participate in this and are beneficiaries of it. Um, now, I, I understand that there's no place in the New Testament that mandates that, t- that the church is to be a social service agency. Uh, every place you see in the New Testament about helping the poor and the hungry has to do with helping those within the church. But that's not to say that it's wrong to help those outside, nor is it to say that it's inappropriate to help them for the purpose of the gospel. I mean, ultimately, we're not going to do what the government's going to do. But we can do some things to manifest the love of Christ to these people and reach out to them with the gospel. So the ultimate goal is not necessarily to feed all of the hungry. I wish we could. But the ultimate goal is the gospel. You're going to hear more from John Parker, who is the the chairman of the diaconate. Uh, He's helping organize this. uh, John and Julie and some others have been have been working with this with some other churches in the area. I'm I'm really impressed with what I'm hearing, and it's going to require that that we all kind of come together periodically. I know not all of you are going to be called to this, but but hopefully a number of you will. I'm looking forward to going some Saturday where they're doing this. They typically do it, as I understand, on a Saturday. Um, they bring a truck in, and and it's it's quite a an organized effort. 
Um, and there will be a few Saturdays um, throughout the year uh, where we will come together, I think, as I've heard from John, and he's going to tell you much more about it later on, but it's going to take about 60 of us on a Saturday to give our day and, and, and to hand out these things, and it's very well organized with respect to praying with these people and sharing the gospel, and I'm excited about that. So that is one area we want to focus on. So we want you to, you know, walk arms with us here in whatever way you can. We also want to, secondly, um, become more organized in what we would call regional church mentoring. Um, For a number of years, we have come alongside other churches in ways that hardly any of you know, Uh, churches that have reached out to us to help them with various things, people in Middle Tennessee and and in other places around the country and several places around the world. But and, and we help them deal with all manner of issues. Um, and there, there are some that we're dealing with right now in a very formal way. And next week when Pastor Joe is here, he'll tell you a little bit more about that. But we've done this behind the scenes. We want to do it uh, in, a more, in a more organized way, especially with churches in the immediate area. And so we are praying to this end. Again, another way of reaching out to our community. We also, number three want to become more aggressive with our community events. You know that we have an amazing 4th of July uh, extravaganza here. We're trying to come up with ways of maybe partnering with some other churches and, and making this more of, a, of an evangelistic campaign to whatever degree we can. We're going to plan towards a more, um, uh, a more elaborate and a more evangelistic type of Christmas program, Christmas concert. Uh, by the way, there's thousands of things that you can do, but with our limited resources and people, there's only a few that we're going to try to focus on, okay? It's not to say that there aren't things that might not be better. And if you've got some better ideas, or, and you know, sometimes these things morph into something else, but these are some things that we're planning, and we want you to join with us on. Um, we're going to be uh, scheduling some camping and, and hiking trips. Uh, this is a great way, especially in our culture around here, to bring men uh, especially with their children and, and, to, and to come along and to do some of those things. Uh, we've done and we're going to do more of shooting events. We've got George Wade's farm where we can come and do those things and we're planning on some of those. A lot of unsaved people in this area love to shoot as a lot of us do. A great place to come and you know you have the campfire and you, and you uh, well if it's hot we won't have the fire but but we'll, we'll have something cold to drink. But the point is, we come together and shoot and just be around people for the sake of the gospel. So we have some of this that we're planning. And you may wish to organize, I don't know, some, some running events or cycling events or whatever. Anything, dear friends, to bring unsaved people together in such a way as we can love them and be salt and light. That's what we're trying to do. And we want your help. And all you have to do, folks, is just look around. And you see that the fields are white for harvest. And personal evangelism is by far the most effective way. As you invite people into your life and into your home and you build relationships with them. And so we want to help you with that. And then number four, we want to become more aggressive with our missionary updates. Uh, We are working... um, to have our missionaries join us live on Sunday mornings from any place in the world where we can actually talk with them and they can see you, you can see them. 
We think that this is going to be a very effective way of understanding more of who they are, what's going on, so we can, we can enter into their struggle rather than seeing them kind of at a distance and talking them to them just you know, through telephone or email, which I get to do a lot, but you don't. And so we want to, we want to bring that uh, to the forefront as well. By the way, that is an enormous encouragement to our missionaries. And anything you can do to write them and, and uh, communicate with them will be helpful. We want to develop a more formal and intentional method of, of personal communication and prayer. Uh, this, by the way, is including something that Jake has been working on. This is videos covering their actual ministries. Uh, vi- he has already done this uh, in Spain. I'm going to tell you more about that in a moment. Uh, where he has gone, uh, he and, uh, and Debbie went w- actually with me and filmed that ministry so that we can bring it back and explain it to you. He just got finished doing the same thing with Mark and Babe Smith with the North America Indigenous Ministries in British Columbia um, up in Lillooet, up in the mountains there. And you'll be seeing that after it's edited. We want to do that with Elijah, with, with William, with the Tabers, and, and others, that he, even our dear brother in, in, uh, in Russia that, that we support. And this will be something that we can put on our websites, but also a way of showing you and showing others, you know, here's the people that are partnering with us in terms of, of missions. And then we're looking at, at organizing both short and, some, and especially short-term mission trips. Hopefully will lead to some long-term ones as well. First of all, um, we have done the investigation, the due diligence with uh, a group in Spain, as you may recall. Um, they wanted to make sure that we were a like-minded church before they allowed anyone to come help them. And so I felt it was important to go there. And we fell in love with them as they did with us. They are basically a mirror image of our church in Spain. And God is doing some amazing things through them. And so it will be a great place to send uh, a team of people to go. It's going to cost anywhere from two to $2,500 to go, which, by the way, is a steal for a mission trip of that sort. Sometimes people say, well, I can't come up with that money. Sure you can. All you have to do is work, raise it, you know, communicate to people. We will help you with that. I was asking Pastor Joe about this. He says he's been on literally dozens of trips that, that cost at least this, if not more. And he says everybody is able to eventually raise the money. And we want to help you do that. It may mean that you don't eat at McDonald's or a few other places a few more times. And you may have to do some extra work. But this, if this is your commitment, we'd love to see you partner because we know that that when you go on short-term missions, it begins to, uh, in other places around the world, it begins to open up your eyes to what God is really doing in other cultures. And this is, would be an amazing place to go. Uh, we also want to uh, develop a, a short-term trip with Elijah uh, in Kenya to co-labor with uh, Colonial Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina. They have... Um, uh, they have a thing called Build the Village over there in Kenya, and we're trying to get Elijah to work there. I think that's going to happen. They have uh, medical teams that go. They have a, 
uh, a well child and a well baby clinic, a huge orphanage. They do uh, Bible conferences and so forth. And Lord willing, this will, will give people an opportunity to experience uh, overseas missions. And we know that every, almost every missionary will tell you that the thing that really moved them towards the mission field was their experience at a, on a short-term trip. So we want to give that opportunity to you. And then the final thing that we're focusing on under this particular heading is church planting. Uh, as you know, we support Wes and Lori Tabor with Life and Messiah, Jewish evangelism all around the world. We support Michael Medjanik and his wife. We, we want to show more of them and hopefully have them interacting with us. Uh, they're right outside of Russia in, uh, uh, in the uh, Ryazan region. Uh, they're with Slavic Gospel Association, friends of some of our other Russian people that have been here. Of course, we support Mark and Babe Smith and their church planning uh, uh, work in Little Wet, British, British Columbia. We support the, the South Sudanese uh, brothers that we have, Elijah Iraq and William Marang uh, Magat. They're now in Kenya being run out of South Sudan because of the fighting. We uh, continue to interface with Charlie Frederico in planting the church there in Kalispell, uh, Montana. We're excited about what the Lord's doing there. You're going to hear more about that. And then we now have uh, Calvary Bible Church, church East meeting out uh, in Mount Juliet, basically a Sunday night worship service. And, and actually, last night, we had our first meeting of, of, at least temporarily, we're calling it Calvary Bible Church Nashville. Uh, it's basically more of an evangelistic uh, Bible fellowship forum for discussing biblical issues. Um, we met for the first time at Serge and Jazzy's last night, completely packed the place out. Uh, we had a number of our South Sudanese friends there uh, and, uh, and their children. And there's a, they told me that there's a lot more that want to be a part of this. But some of them work on Saturday nights. Many of them work a couple of jobs. Um, we're really excited about this ministry as well. Uh, for those of you that don't know, most all of these uh, people, well, actually all of these people are lost boys from the lost boy communities that were sent here a number of years ago. And they were there with their families. Most all of these people are highly educated. Uh, they really value education. Most all of the men have a master's degree. One, one of the brothers is uh, working on his Ph.D. in economics. And like, for example, last night, and this is basically how the forum will go, it's like, well, wh what would you like to talk about tonight? Well, one of the ladies, who is an attorney, uh, said that uh, she is, has to write an amicus brief on the issue of homosexuality to assist the legislature here in Tennessee. And she says, I've asked different pastors to help me understand homosexuality from a biblical perspective, and I'm curious if you would mind addressing that. And so for the next 30 minutes, I took them all through the Word and addressed that biblically, which, by the way, was their position, and she just never heard it explained in that way. So it's great. I'm able to help her with, with all of this. And, of course, it gets into all kinds of other things about the gospel and the second coming, and, and so it's just a wonderful opportunity. Uh, so these are things that, that we're talking about with respect to church planting and just reaching out in various ways. Well, my time is gone. I, I hope this has been encouraging to you. Folks, it's going to require all of you to stand firm, stay united, strive together, and suffer expectantly for the glory of Christ who is coming soon. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all that you are and all that you do. Lord, we are such a needy people. We are so prone to sin in so many ways. But I thank you that by your grace, you are conforming us to the image of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have promised to build your church because we could certainly never do it on our own. So we give all of this to you, crying out yet again that you will be glorified in all that we do. We ask in Jesus' name and for his glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.